Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Mark Steers. I'm director of the Sydney Policy Lab here at the University of Sydney. Um, We're going to be talking about ideas for the future, big, bold ideas for the future. Uh, Before I introduce our special guest, I I just wanted to reflect on two things from the past. Uh, You all have your own individual reasons to be here tonight. One reason I'm extremely excited to be here and to hear what what, um, Kevin Rudd has to say is a a very powerful memory I have in the back of my mind, which is uh, back in 2007, I was then an academic teaching at the University of Oxford. Uh, Days were normal and slightly dull, but I remember arriving one day in late November to the loudest party that I think I've ever heard. And I thought, what's going on? It's like, you know, has the sort of college won some race or has there been some sort of huge, uh, you know, sort of event at college? And I realized it was Australian students and many others celebrating quite a special election victory. Uh, And my imagination, uh, now I kind of think I can still hear those sounds. You know, I thought originally it was Led Zeppelin, but it was Stairway to Kevin uh, floating through the evening breeze. Uh, And it's... uh, Then later on in my life, I became a a political activist myself. I joined the UK Labour Party. uh, And at that point, it was a different kind of story that I heard because every serious policy meeting you'd go to or every serious strategy, narrative setting event you'd go to, at some point, people would turn back uh, to the Labour government led by Kevin Rudd and what it had done and how it had secured Australia's future at an extraordinarily difficult time globally. Uh, And Kevin remained an extraordinary source of inspiration and excitement uh, for thinkers internationally and does so today. Uh, And my old boss, Ed Miliband, who was leader of the Labour Party, would always turn to speeches by Kevin, articles by him when we were thinking about new directions for the party. So it's extraordinarily exciting for me personally to hear what we have to hear tonight. Uh, I'm going to introduce Kevin. He'll give us a a, a talk. Uh, We'll reflect on it. We'll have a little bit of a conversation at the front. Uh, Then we're going to hear from uh, my colleague, Katie Moore. Um, But with no further ado, uh, please give a very warm Sydney welcome to Kevin. Thank you very much, and it's good to be here in the People's Republic of Sydney. The, uh, and uh, you mentioned Oxford. Um, uh, for my sins, I am now a DPhil student at Oxford, uh, writing a dissertation on Xi Jinping's worldview. Uh, My main attraction for going to Oxford, though, was um, to participate in college life. My college at Oxford is Jesus College Oxford. Um, And my main interest in having that as my college so that I could now have an Oxford email address, which is uh, kevin.rudd at Jesus. Jesus, I'm sure, is offended by that, uh, but I believe I'll benefit from the association. The um, stairway to Kevin, George Pell, who I knew at the time of my election, uh, uh, often regarded uh, the election of my government as a pathway to hell. Um, But that is a matter for another occasion. Um, I too begin by honouring the first Australians uh, on whose lands we meet and whose cultures we celebrate as the oldest continuing cultures in human history. I've been in the business this week uh, back in Australia from the United States where we now live and I run an American think tank um, to deliver a series of lectures uh, on alternative visions for Australia's future. Why am I doing this? I fear that we've become the complacent country. Uh, complacent about our economic future, complacent about the future uh, pressures on our society, uh, complacent about our climate future, uh, complacent about our future in the region and the world, given China's rise, America's response, and the uncertainties which abound as a result. And my view is that uh, our future as a country is guaranteed by nobody. It's not written in the stars, it's crafted by us. The energy of our hands, the capacity of our imagination, uh, and our ability to get our national shit together. It's a technical term in political theory. Um, And that's why I speak about the need to have the audacity uh, to have for ourselves a national vision for our future. A vision which is uh, anchored in our 
ideals, our identity as a people, uh, anchored in the dream time. Anchored also in our enduring values as Australians, our underlying national interests, anchored also in our understanding of the extraordinary uh, challenges now bearing down on the country, which are of a structural nature, uh, and a vision which has about it also a coherent national policy strategy for responding to those challenges and in a manner consistent with who we are as a people and our enduring values and interests. So uh, on Monday in my own uh, home turf, the People's Republic of Queensland, uh, it's not a contradiction in terms, uh, we still have a few secret collectives at work up there. Um, the, uh, I spoke about these questions of identity and values and of enduring national interests. If you're interested, uh, you'll find that uh, as of, I think, tomorrow evening on my website, and part of it will be in this weekend's um, uh, Saturday paper. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, I was in uh, Melbourne, University of Melbourne, speaking about alternative visions for the future of our economy, including the immediate challenges we face with the risk of recession. Some of that's covered in today's financial review. Uh, yesterday at the ANU, I was speaking about alternative uh, futures for Australia uh, within our region and within the global order, given China's rise. Um, and what I'd like to do tonight, uh, subject to your views, but if you disagree, tough luck, um, it's too late. Uh, I wanted to talk about alternative visions for the future of our democracy uh, and uh, how we sustain the continuing renewal of the Australian democratic project, given the pressures bearing down on it as well. I think when we look at the uh, future of the democracy, uh, I would ask us to bear in mind the following questions, which I'll return to soon. Uh, the nature of our nation's media, and therefore the commons through which we prosecute the future national conversations we need to have, or the absence of such a commons. Secondly, um, the nature of our political parties themselves and their need for internal renewal. Uh, thirdly, the future of our national institutions, also part of our national democracy, most particularly our public service, our civil service. And finally, challenges which are beginning to emerge, let's call it in the ideational intellectual sphere, about even the continuing validity of liberal democracy itself as an idea, something I would have found shocking just five years ago, but now to see emerging in semi-respectable right-wing thinking, the idea that we may be in need of just a temporary dictatorship. Let me come back to those set of themes uh, as we progress through this discussion. I said before that uh, in framing a national vision, if we stand back uh, from the uh, sound and fury of each day's so-called political debate and take breath and take stock, what are the enduring challenges, structural challenges, now bearing down on our nation and nations like ours around the world? I've identified 10. Let me just run through them briefly. One, the unfolding unprecedented global technology revolution. On the one hand, challenging our country's future international economic competitiveness because we are not ourselves the owners and innovators of some of the technologies that will drive the economy of the future, then we will literally be left behind. But at the same time, dealing with the profound disruptions on society and the workplace that will arise from these enormous new technologies, most particularly artificial intelligence. Two, the profound challenge of sustaining strong long-term economic growth for our country. Given the aging of our population, the static nature of workforce participation and declining productivity levels. Um, 
compounded by a declining bipartisan consensus on long-term migration flows, inadequate infrastructure investment, and as I've already noted, a global technology innovation revolution that may be leaving Australia behind. Three, the clear ravages of climate, climate change. Where our national and global actions to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions are woefully inadequate to prevent unsustainable temperature increases, producing as a result increasingly frequent extreme weather events with grave consequences for long-term global food security and water security, resulting in turn and forced migration of peoples at scale, and within Australia itself, the sustainability of the Murray-Darling Basin. Four, the failure to prepare sufficiently for the ageing of our population through the absence of fundamental health, hospitals and aged care reform to maintain high quality health care, but in a manner which is fiscally sustainable for the Commonwealth. Uh, and regrettably, uh, the virtual repeal of these reforms which we introduced in 2010 and 11. Five, a failure to conclude the national reconciliation process with Indigenous Australians through sustained investment in closing the gap on the one hand and the completion of constitutional recognition of our First Peoples on the other. For God's sake, when will we just get this done? Six, a fragmenting global order driven by a rising China and increasingly isolationist America, a divided Europe, a yawning global leadership deficit in an increasingly G0 world. And the growing danger I see of a return to pre-45 notions of survival of the national fittest. Seven, the increasing polarization of this our own region between Chinese and American spheres of geostrategic and economic influence, reducing the freedom of policy maneuver for regional states as they seek to carve out their own national futures. Eight, the growing wave of people movements across the world by those escaping both political, economic and climatic insecurity in their own countries of origin, but as they migrate, at pace and at scale, generating in turn politically and racially charged reactions in the countries they escape to, so that these in turn go to the heart of local political concerns on the deepest questions of collective cultural identity, fueling in turn the politics of the far right in particular. Think of Germany, think of elsewhere in Europe, think of America, think also in part of here. Nine, the polarization of our democracies themselves between rich and poor and increasingly struggling middle class, the failure of much of the traditional politics of the center right and the center left uh, to deliver sustainable solutions to fundamental problems, compounded by a national media split between what I describe as Murdoch's far right and the faux left and the screaming balkanization of social media destroying any real possibility of a political commons through which to conduct a reasonable national conversation. And so much so that we begin to see the delegitimization of democracy itself in the eyes of the people. And finally, underpinning all of the above, a new gaping chasm in our deepest underlying values. As Christianity declines and almost disappears in the West after 1700 years of cultural dominance, driven in large part by its own appalling and recent history of institutional hypocrisy. But to be replaced by a secularism, increasingly uncertain of its own moral compass, to guide what is left of the modern day enlightenment project and now facing an increasingly self-confident new authoritarianism in China and in Russia and elsewhere, offering alternative modes of political and economic governance. Apart from all that, it's going fine. Um, <laughs> so, so cheer, cheer up, beers on, freebies at the back and let's have a natter over a book. Um, but we're not all ruined. But to cap off the list of 10 I have just gone through and reflecting conversations I have in my think tank uh, capacity with political leaders around the world, um, these are relevant to many countries and they are all relevant to ours. 
but for the political process itself within our democracies, our liberal democracies, here's the final icing on the cake. All these things, all these large-scale structural challenges are unfolding simultaneously. And at a pace where our classical liberal democratic political institutions are finding it almost impossible to cope with. And at the same time, the underlying legitimacy of our domestic political institutions, democratic institutions, and our institutions of international and regional governance themselves having their legitimacy challenged on a daily basis. We live in difficult times. Tonight, as I said, I want to address just one set of those challenges, which is the nature of our democracy itself. Because unless we deal with it, together with the other substantive policy challenges, then frankly, uh, our ability to deal with the range of those challenges is itself undermined. Therefore, we must give it separate reflection. Firstly, on the question of the national media. Uh, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar, and I'm certainly not one. I'm from Queensland. I'm just here to help. Uh, to work out that in the period since 2007 through 2010, 13, 16, and most recently 19, that the media organisation which dominates uh, this country, uh, the Murdoch media, representing some 60 to 70% of the print readership in this country, hates our guts. <laughs> by which I mean the Australian Labor Party, but more broadly, the progressive left. This is not me and sour grapes. It's simply a reflection of the nature of media balance on the part of that extraordinarily powerful media entity as re recorded in each of those elections. Even in 2007, where certain Murdoch mastheads technically endorsed me in their pre-election editorials, if you look at their tabloid coverage for the year prior to the 07 election, they were seeking to disembowel me on a rolling basis through one series of personal accusations of scandal or corruption or whatever after another. But on election eve, even with that endorsement, um, and you look at the election coverage of 07, it was 50% for us, 50% against us. Even when they'd concluded internally, it was likely that we were going to win. Roll the clock on to 2010 and to 2013, it was more like 80-20 against us, 90-10 against us, 16 and 19, and most recently, frankly, if you read, as I did, each day's coverage in the last election held only a few months ago, it was like 100 to zero in the Murdoch print media. Given its dominance in this country and the fact that it bleeds into the electronic coverage, both radio and television and through into social media, uh, this is a profound cancer on our democracy in terms of the capacity to advance alternative ideas for the nation's future. Not only that, the nature of the Murdoch beast itself uh, is deeply ideological the right-wing, far-right-wing agenda on climate change is clear to all. Uh, currently, with the national China hysteria, reds under every bed, uh, rapidly morphing into the yellow peril, as if we're into some great throwback to the 50s. On top of which, again, uh, we have a Murdoch media, uh, which has attacked all forms of economic stimulus, including that used during, to great effect during the last financial crisis. And remember, it was the Murdoch media both here in the United States and in uh, the United Kingdom which led the charge to go to war in Iraq in 2003. And here we are nearly 16 years later, and the consequences of that through Iraq and Syria and prospectively across the Gulf and into Iran are with us still today. Thank you, Uncle Rupert, for all the above. It's ideological, but at the same time, it's also deeply commercial. Uh, 
the Murdoch agenda in the 2013 election was plain on the national broadband network. We, the Labor Party, as a government, had advanced fiber optic to the premises across the nation as part of a $42 billion nation-building program. Uh, Murdoch was determined to kill it because it represented a threat to his only profit center left in the Murdoch empire here in Australia, which is the Fox Cable Entertainment Network. Why? Because our network that we were building would enable competitors like Netflix to provide uh, direct entertainment products to the home. Which is why Murdoch turned round to the Conservatives and said, uh, you kill this and we'll support you a thousand percent of the way. And how do they kill it? By turning fiber optic to the premises into fiber optic to the node, and thereby leaving the last bit of the NBN unconnected, which is why you have such a stupendously good NBN today. Not. Um, that is precisely the nature of the transaction which occurred. And any amount of denial by Murdoch executives or by the Tories, uh, frankly, is a betrayal of the truth. It's an ideological agenda, it's a commercial agenda, it's obviously by definition a political agenda, and it's a global agenda. Across the Anglosphere, these debates all occur in parallel. They don't occur in Canada. Have you wondered why? But Rupert's not in Canada. <laughs> But in the United Kingdom, the United States and here, the parallels in the debates in our respective polities on climate, on China and the rest is in part uh, driven uh, by the dominance which Murdoch has within those media markets. And for those who think it will all expire when Rupert himself expires, there's another Murdoch waiting. His name is Lachlan and he is every bit as conservative as his dear papa. Uh, Lachlan is a climate change denier. We know that from our engagement with him when I was in office. Uh, and therefore, the view that somehow this will mellow like a good wine uh, once a generation passes is frankly simply a political hope rather than based in any form of fact. In fact, if you look at Lachlan Murdoch and the Gang of Four, who each day determine the country's media agenda, Chris Dore, the editor of The Australian, Boris Whitaker, the fellow who runs Sky News and Sky After Dark, and the right-wing Neanderthals who hang about on that particular panel, uh, together with um, Ben English, the editor of The Daily Telegraph, and Sam Weir, the editor of the Queensland Courier-Mail, that's the gang of four which sets the framework, the tonality of the national media, national public policy debate and political debate in this country on a daily basis. They operate not just as a media organization, they run effectively as a political party in coalition with the formal conservative party called ironically the Liberal Party of Australia. Therefore, my argument to you this evening is that this represents a fundamental challenge uh, to the future of our democracy. And unless we deal with this Murdoch challenge effectively, then all debates we seek to have about the future composition of a vision for our country, on the economy, on social justice, on the future of the republic, our constitutional arrangements, even constitutional recognition of indigenous voice, uh, together with our place in the region the world, is compromised. But more dangerously, in my judgment, is the deep damage it does the democracy itself. Nonetheless, the business of framing a progressive vision for our nation's future, uh, the right-wing media, the Murdoch media, is a big part of the problem. But there's also a problem I'd like to highlight this evening as well. And that is what I describe as the media of the faux left. The sad fact is that there is nothing that the putative left-wing commentariat of parts of this country enjoy more is than ripping a Labour Party or a Labour government to bits for failing to live up to the high ideals of the progressive political cause, or at least as selectively defined by self-same left-wing commentariat. 
Indeed, there is a perverse psychology at play on the part of a number of so-called left progressive commentators, which compels them to demonstrate that they, the progressive commentariat alone, are pure, whereas those of us engaged in active hand-to-hand -hand combat in centre-left politics are by definition impure and have fallen from grace. This is part of what I see to be a wider psychosis on the part of elements of the armchair left that always prefers to eat its own rather than attack the conservatives. In this chic left view of the world, Labor governments must deliver either 100% of the progressive reform agenda, because after all, Labor is supposed to believe in these things, whereas from the comfort of the armchairs, the recline, it's assumed that because the conservatives have never believed in these things, then what's the point in ripping into them at all? And from this same, what I describe as bourgeois left view of the world, such practical matters as the need to build a political constituency to support the passage of real progressive reform by appealing to the centre and sometimes even to the right is ridiculed as simple backsliding rather than the essential business of politics to entrench reform for the long term. So whether it's marriage equality, asylum seekers, climate change, poverty, homelessness, foreign aid or human rights, unless in this view Labor governments agree to deliver the totality of the Green Left's definition of the progressive agenda, we in the Labor movement are written off as a bunch of backsliders, whereas the Conservatives are often given a leave pass because they don't know any better because we had no expectations of them to begin with. We see this psychology sometimes in parts of the ABC, where the Green Party, and I'm a person who funded the ABC most in the last 20 years, um, where, the AB, where the Green Party is often covered as co-equal with the Labor Party, and where the ABC is so terrified of funding cuts from the Conservatives that they will often bend over backwards to attack Labor in order to be seen by the Liberals as balanced comfortable in the assumption that a Labour incumbency will never cut ABC funding and, in fact, only enhance it, which, of course, we do. Of course, in fashioning a progressive vision for the nation's future, it's easy to write a script that the Green Party would be delighted by. But the Green Party has zero interest in forming a government of Australia. Indeed, when they've had the chance to be constructive partners of reformer, reformist Labor governments in the past, they've elected instead to skewer the Labor Party and government by voting with the Conservatives in the Senate on the spurious grounds that Labor's proposed reform program was not reformist enough. Exhibit A, the Emissions Trading Scheme, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, voted down twice in the Senate through the combined votes of the Green Party and the Liberals. Had the, had the Green Party not done that a decade ago, we would be one decade into a carbon price. And we'd be having now a debate about which of the older coal mines in this country would be closing down as a consequence of the economy adjusting to a lower carbon reality. But that was not rendered possible, in large part, and never forget it, because the Green Party chose to become the coalition partner of the Conservatives arguing that we in the Labor government were not progressive enough. Being therefore a mainstream progressive party seeking to form progressive government in this country can be a lonely business, vilified by the right, although the right, you will notice, always lionize their own, as they have done with Howard and Abbott, and cannibalized by the left, who literally prefer to eat their own rather than to lionize their own. The heroes of the left, if we look at political history like Whitlam, well, they're almost all dead. Uh, when in office, they too were demonized as sellouts to the right. This happened with Goff. He used to tell me about it. It certainly happened with Hawkey. He always told me about it. And it certainly happened with PJK, Paul Keating, and he tells me about it. Uh, and it has ever been thus for us. The right-wing commentariat, for a range of reasons, ideological, personal, and purely social, nonetheless want their own team of political miscreants in power. However politically wacky they might be, think of Tony Abbott, ideologically impure they might be from a right-wing perspective, think of Malcolm Turnbull, or how messianically driven they may be, think Scott Morrison. Nonetheless, the right lionize their own. We prefer, as I said, to eat our own. 
Much of the left commentariat would prefer an eternal seminar on why we have failed to win power. Or if we happen to win, uh, give a thousand reasons why we are undeserving of winning. It's a curious psychosis of which Freud, if he was still with us, would have had much to say. However, the reason for discussing this question at some length tonight goes beyond an interest in the underlying psychology of much of our national politics. It also goes to the different levels of expectations of political parties of the right and the left as shaped by the attitudes of the conservative and progressive media over time. The political right, for example, are expected to deliver on basic security and economic stability with an acceptable minimum of social provision. Anything beyond that is seen as a generous bonus, an unexpected benefit, almost a form of political noblesse oblige. The left, by contrast, that's us, we're expected to provide the same security the same economic stability as the right, while also deploying equal political vigour in the provision of social justice, including labour rights, environmental protection, as well as an innovative international policy balancing in our case the US alliance, the region, the United Nations and the rest. Whereas the far left, that is the Green Party, represent a constituency which have little interest in security and the economy, and at best a partial interest in a structural approach to social justice, concentrating instead on the environment and selective international concerns to the exclusion of all others, reflecting the fact that ultimately theirs is a politics of protest, with not even a marginal interest in forming a progressive government. In other words, under the political equivalent of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the conservatives are ultimately expected to deliver on only the most basic of Maslow's needs, and if they do, they pass, tick. Whereas we of the centre-left are expected to cover the total spectrum, otherwise we fail. And as for the far left, sorry, far left, uh, tilting at windmills is all that matters because gesture politics focused on the tip of the Maslowian hierarchy is all that matters. Without attending to the base of the pyramid, the far left know that they can never be elected, but as noted above, that doesn't really matter. That's not what they've been interested in. Deep structural tensions inevitably emerge, therefore, when a progressive party tries to address the full range of policy needs across Maslow's hierarchy. It's why Labour inevitably finds itself in political trouble both to its right and its left. It's also why the Labour Party is structurally correct when it says that the expectations uh, on it in government are invariably higher than those for the Conservatives. And that's before we add the additional reporting bias of the Murdoch media, whose strategic interest lies in the continuing delegitimization of Labour by magnifying conservative attacks from the right against Labour for going too far, for being economically responsible, or for jeopardising the country's national security, but also reporting the left critique of us as well for not going far enough, to be fair. In other words, they get you both coming and going. In fact, the Murdoch media, aided and better by significant elements of the faux-left commentariat, delight in this rolling pincer movement against the legitimacy of the Labour Party. And it underlines why Labour must therefore take on its adversaries on both flanks if we are to prevail in our efforts to provide an effective progressive vision for the nation from the reforming centre. Our political and policy challenge by definition will always be more difficult than for the Conservatives and infinitely more difficult than for the Green Party. One further word about the media. I've spoken about the Murdoch right. I've spoken about what I've described as the faux left and where that leaves parties of the reforming progressive centre. But on the future of the ABC itself, it becomes even more fundamentally important as possibly the single remaining open and potentially neutral commons in which to have long-term conversations about our nation's future. And therefore, what have the Conservatives done with the ABC? We legislated in 2012 in the ABC Amendment Act for there to be an independent process for the appointment of a panel to recommend appointees to the ABC board and in turn for the chairman or chairperson of the board to be so appointed as well. The Conservatives 
notwithstanding the existence of that act on the Australian statute book, in more than half of the appointments to the current ABC board have chosen to ignore the recommendations of such an independent panel. So the institution itself, quite apart from the usual conservative assault on its funding base, quite apart from the usual rolling critique of the ABC by the Murdoch media, are also from the inside in terms of the composition of their board uh, being continuing to be politicised. Despite the legislative initiative by my government, our government, to change that with the ABC Reform Act of 2012. I conclude these remarks on the media itself by simply saying this. On the future of the media in this country and the concentration of media ownership and on the manipulation by the media of political and policy debates in order to advance the commercial interests of certain media operations like the Murdoch empire on the national broadband network, the time has come for a full royal commission into the operation of the media in this country, including the concentration of media ownership with recommendations for a more de democratic and diversified national media platform for the future. I said before that I would speak about several elements of the rolling challenges to our democracy. I spent most of my time this evening speaking about the media itself because it is the lifeblood of how we conduct a national conversation. And to ignore it, frankly, ignores the elephant in the room. But two or three other remarks before I close and we go to discussion and to Q&A. On the nature of our political parties themselves, there have been much debate, legitimate given the events of the last few days in this fair town of Sydney, uh, on the nature of uh, campaign donations to political parties. Uh, I intend to address this head on here this evening. Point one. In 2009, we legislated uh, as an Australian Labor government, recommended to me by then Minister, Special Minister for State John Faulkner, for a comprehensive package of changes and reforms to Australian campaign donation laws. These would have banned all forms of foreign donations to political parties. They would have also capped the contributions by any individual to any Australian election campaign. That legislation was voted down twice by Malcolm Turnbull. When I therefore hear the Conservatives complain about how this wide open door uh, has led to levels of manipulation by various people in Australian politics and those who make donations to political parties, I say, physician, heal thyself in terms of your decision in 2009 to block a fundamental reform which would have transformed the way in which we conduct our political business in the decades since. Secondly, when I also look at the current nature of our political parties, that reform program of 2009, in my judgment, now needs to be taken further. Australia should uh, implement the full range of reforms embraced by the government of Canada under a conservative government in terms of the future of political donations to political parties. For example, in Canada today, the limit for an individual contribution to a political party is $1,500. That's Canadian dollars. Secondly, the overall uh, limit to a person's individual contribution to their own campaign is $15,000. The overall ceiling that can be spent on a campaign within a constituency, a riding as they call it in, in Canada, is $280,000. The limit that can be that is now imposed by law on a political party's expenditure with an individual electorate is $119,000. There are further limits on third party contributions. And so therefore, this now is the set of reforms which we need here. But to make the Canadian democracy work, they also mandate that the media operations of the country provide open free time when I say open free time, free time within defined limits for each, of the camp, for each of the principal political parties to explain their message to the Canadian people. Unless we begin to embrace reforms of that radical nature, we are running the risk still of our democracies being bought 
Do not underestimate the singular impact of Clive Palmer's spending $60 million on exclusively negative ads against the Australian Labor Party, particularly in Queensland and Western Australia during the last campaign. That would not be possible were we to implement a Canadian reform program. And if we were to implement such a program, the transformational impact that it could well have and should have on our mainstream political parties would be to turn them once again into be viable, effective grassroots organisations, dealing with communities at local levels across the country rather than to pure political war-fighting machines, because that often is where the problem comes from. My final remark this evening uh, about the nature of our democracy and how to re-engineer it for the future and not allow it to wither on the vine goes to the other, of the other, of other of our national institutions which underpin the democracy. And here I talk about the independence of the civil service, the public service in this country. As someone who has been Humphrey, myself, I used to be the cabinet secretary in the Queensland government. As someone who has been Bernard, that is, uh, the civil service advisor in a ministerial office, as someone who has been the minister, I have been foreign minister, and as someone who's been prime minister, I kind of understand the different roles which these beasts play in the public policy and political process. I am exhibit A uh, of what actually happens. And therefore, I speak with a level of authority about the simple proposition. One of the greatest gifts we got from the Brits, I won't mention cricket, um, is the whole notion of a professional independent civil service, professional independent and permanent civil service. What are the reasons for that? Number one is that anyone who has been a member of a cabinet will tell you that what you rely upon from a public service is genuine, frank and fearless public policy advice about how to solve the problems of the nation. The mythical notion that political parties in themselves are complete repositories of such knowledge in their pre-election manifestos is simply the stuff of which certain smoking substances are made and I wish someone would give me some, because it's simply unfounded and untrue. And I have been part of such cabinets at both the state and the federal level. Number two, incoming governments require the professional expertise of civil servants to effectively implement public policy programs. Very few incoming ministers have a clue about the nature of public administration, that is the delivery of programs on the ground. And thirdly, why you need a high quality and permanent public service which transcends the political term is that you also need to have senior civil servants who across their ranks have institutional memory and history. Otherwise, our governments are without memory. Yet when I see Morrison's statement most recently to the public service in Canberra, where he said, your job, uh, frankly, uh, is to attend to middle Australia. Uh, we, the political class, are those in charge of you. We know that you public servants think that you uh, know it best in providing advice on particular public policy challenges, but you don't because we, as the political class, have a unique ear for the Australian public. I just describe that as comprehensive codswallop. And the bottom line is it's intended to send a meta message to the Australian public service, be afraid, be very afraid, because if you think that you can provide robust, frank, fearless, independent advice to us, then the message I'm sending to you is that it's not welcome. In office ourselves, the statements we made and the practices we pursued with the Australian Public Service was that we wanted and required such independent advice from our bureaucratic advisors. To conclude on this point, it is passing strange and indeed ironic that we in the Australian Labor Party have become the defenders, the conservative defenders of public service traditions in this country. I thought that's what conservatives were supposed to do. Always harking back to a halcyon period from the past, John Howard wrapping himself in the Union Jack and humming land of hope and glory in the shower and all the rest of it 
was all about classic conservatism. That is, these institutions in a Burkean sense, which continue to have utility today, never even consider the faintest element of their reform unless they prove to be dysfunctional. That's gone out the window as Howard's government and now the post-13 conservative governments have increasingly politicized the public service and caused them to say that such independent advice is not welcome. We have sought to do the reverse. I conclude by saying this, whether it is on the nature of the Australian media, whether it is on the question of the uh, integrity of our political parties, on the question of campaign donations, or it's on the question of the robustness of our national institutions, our democratic fabric is under deep structural challenge. But when I begin to see some writers in the national right-wing media saying, invoking, as Henry Ergas did recently, Carl Schmitt, a German political writer from the 1920s in the Weimar Republic of Germany, as saying, from time to time, uh, liberal democracies will find that they may need a period of temporary dictatorship in order to sort out otherwise irresolvable public policy problems, I become profoundly concerned. I'm accustomed to such ideas lolling around out there amongst the, lo the lunar right, but when I start to see such ideas finding their way into more mainstream right-wing media platforms, such as the newspaper which describes itself as Our National Daily, The Australian, I begin to become more concerned that in fact questions are being raised by the right around the world about the utility of democracy itself. Irresolvable problems and looking over their shoulder to the rising China slash authoritarian Russia challenge and saying, we need more robust forms of governance ourselves to meet this challenge. Where then do our values go? What then happens to our identity and the people that we've sought to be as Australians over the last 150 years of our settled history? I thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, a fabulous, if uh, bracing, uh, survey of the challenges that Australian democracy faces and global democracy faces. Um, but my first question is, you, you gave a, a wonderful survey of, of challenges from the media, from corruption grounded in donations, uh, from challenges to fundamental public institutions like the public service. Um, the one part which was mentioned but not delved into is political parties themselves, especially political parties of the centre-left. So I guess I wanted to pose the question to you of how much are they to blame for some of the crises that we currently see. And let me just put that as a, uh, an anecdote. My old colleague, Alistair Campbell, always used to say, when, the, when you get the rise of the faux left and the rise of a sort of very aggressive right, sometimes it's because you're playing a game that no one's interested in watching anymore. Uh, he used to say that when you turn up to a football match and you're the only person in the stadium, something's not quite right. So is there something that the centre-left has done wrong to, to make people lose enthusiasm, lose commitment to fighting for the causes you think they should be fighting for? Yeah, I mean, as with most things in political life, you, as, an, as a movement yourself, you must share responsibility uh, for what's unfolding. It's not just the external factors at play. But it would be incomplete to engage in mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maximum culpa. I'm a Catholic, you can pick that up. The, um, unless uh, you'd at the same time uh, worked out what's bearing down on you from the outside. And to have a self-criticism session about the Australian Labor Party absent a defenestration uh, of uh, the Murdoch media party, uh, it frankly is just, you know, it's not, it's not empirically valid. We could reform ourselves to bits, the Labor Party, uh, but still face uh, this giant rumbling right-wing juggernaut seeking to destroy our every living viscera uh, every day. But for us, I think as a movement, a progressive political movement, uh, what I have sensed is a lack of uh, political aggression on our part uh, to push against uh, the far right and to push against the faux left, both in ideas, ideals and policy. There's been too much silence and I would say accommodation in terms of, let's call it sliding through with a Green Party uh, flank. And we saw where that got to us on the Adani question where we were neither fish nor fowl. 
uh, we fell between two stools. And on the right, uh, frankly, the terrain around industry policy is a classic one on the economy. You can either simply uh, try and um, smudge it through that we favour a little bit more intervention, or you can boldly say, well, that's just nonsense. Uh, the invisible hand is usually called the invisible hand for a particular reason. That's because it's invisible. Um, and that the magic of the marketplace doesn't fix everything. I'm a pro-market guy. But beyond the essential disciplines of macroeconomic stability uh, and levels of microeconomic reform, the clear dividing line between us and them is something called industry policy. And we shouldn't apologise for it. Be there upfront, loud and proud. We believe in large-scale national investment in STEM. Because guess what? The market's not doing that. Mm. Uh, we believed in uh, some level of industry policy intervention in the preservation of motor vehicle manufacturing in this country. Mm. The Tories had a completely ideologically different view, stand back, watch them collapse, and so too uh, the end of three quarters of a century of motor vehicle manufacturing in this country and all the associated technologies which go with it. So my argument in both directions is it requires a level of political aggression to not simply be gentle Jesus, meek and mild and sort of quietly blend in both directions, but to stake out the line there and to stake out the line here. That's what I think is necessary for the future. And I think Albo uh, has uh, the... Um, the uh, personality and the, and the political skill craft to do that. And does that aggression depend on vision or does it just depend on character? So is, is the absence of that aggression because people have just been pulling back from the fight or is it because they don't possess the sense of what the shining city on the hill actually should look like? I think one proceeds from the other. I mean, unless we, without a vision, the people perish. Uh, and we on the progressive left must have a clear idea of where we want, wish to take the country. It's quite plain. What future do we want for our economy? What nature of society? What do we envisage as being a reconciled Australia being like in terms of our first peoples? Um, and there's the same with uh, having landing points for managing the uh, unfolding crisis between China and the United States. It's having confidence in a destination um, that in then informs the question of political strategy. And then it's a question of character in the prosecution of that strategy. And Albo, to give him uh, full marks, has got bucket loads of character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you look globally, given your think tank role now in the United States, where do you see that vision, a centre-left vision, social democratic, restoring the hope of democracy, where do you, where do you see that uh, in its fullest you know, sort of form? Are there sort of global social democratic movements who you think that's it? That's the kind of enthusiasm we need, the aggression we need, the clarity we need? Or, or is the world in the similar kind of state to, to, to us? Regrettably, I think uh, most of the other social democratic parties around the world, centre-left parties, Labour parties, are probably in a worse state of repair than we are. Um, um, some barely so, and some a lot so. If you were to do the survey of Europe at the moment, and, you, and you're a Brit, you understand what it's like. What's the call of the board? Start in Northern Europe and end in the South. The only place at present, apart from a minority government in Sweden, um, uh, is uh, the continued uh, socialist government in Spain. And all points in between, frankly, are looking uh, difficult. And I won't even open up the subject of Corbyn's Labour Party. But, uh, I mean, if ever there was a, an open political and policy goal mm. for the future of progressive politics, which is we, Britain, wish to be part of a progressive European future and let's stay with Europe and let's join this campaign and take the nation with you and defeat um, this uh, government by, um, uh, led by Boris. Um, <laughs> he's the Prime Minister. I, shall, I will be respectful. And by the British Prime Minister. Um, I mean, I cannot even begin to contemplate uh, how that could be justified with the progressive vision of the future, let alone the politics of getting there. Mm -hmm. And so that global phenomenon of disappointment, of a lack of aggression, of a lack of vision, uh, is that the result of similar forces to those you've sketched out today globally? Or is it the result of, you know, are we at a moment, I guess, where nationalist, populist, more conservative forces just have a political advantage in, in debate, where they're managing to generate enthusiasm, create new parties, create new movements? I mean, are we just living at a time when one side of the political spectrum 
is necessarily going to do better than another? Or, or is there a series of common failings across social democratic parties that you could put your finger on? For social democratic parties and progressive politics to succeed, you have to be about two essential propositions. Uh, one is fairness and the other is the future. Um, and on the future, it's the question of securing a progressive future rather than simply waiting back and seeing what happens. Magic of the marketplace, um, judgment, dear boy, events, mm. Harold Macmillan and the rest. And so these two things must be done well, and they are both hard. And that's why we have to be smarter and better. On the flip side, and that's the heart of your question here, is that if you go to uh, the challenge uh, from the centre-right, uh, at the end of the day, the centre-right does not have a good policy story to tell the voting public. When did you last go to a polling booth and hear the Liberal Party candidate here saying, I want to make education more expensive for you and your family? Uh, or I really want to defund Medicare more uh, so that you find it harder to get to the GP of your choice. I, I haven't heard that for a while. Um, uh, or I really want to suck up to the Americans on Iran. Uh, they tend not to say that. Because you know why? It sounds bad. And you know why it sounds bad? It is bad. Uh, uh, and so therefore, what do conservatives <laughs> and their equivalents around the world do? They know it's bad. They're not dumb. Um, they have underneath it all two sets of abiding interests. They believe that political office and being in power is the natural condition of conservatives because that's what we are. Um, and underneath it all, then there's quite a narrow set of interests which are to do with uh, killing Leviathan, shrinking the state, killing the tax base as a result, so that those who actually fund conservatives around the world, people either in cash or kind, Murdoch and the rest, are taxed bugger all. Um, and so how do you, but if you were to say that in an election campaign, not only am I going to make your health and education more expensive, blah, 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 blah uh, but I'm doing it so that Rupert pays less tax, that would be the <laughs> truth. That would be the truth of the discussion at the polling booth. If there was a guy out in the domain here 50 years ago arguing the conservative cause, here is my, here is my manifesto with all these points in it, um, they'd wheel him off in a white coat. So what do they do instead? They run universally the enormous potency of identity politics because they know the overwhelming capacity of the emotions of fear, of anxiety and anger bleeding into each other, suspend any semi-rational processes in voters' minds about what is actually in the public's, what is in their individual interests as voters. And so, the question for conservative politics, which you see everywhere around the world, is you're not doing well. Is that right? And you're, you're finding it hard to pay your health bills? So isn't it shocking that the Labor Party is talking about providing proper health care and treatment for refugees on Nauru and Manus? Fear, anger, resentment. Um, and, uh, oh, you're worried in the United States about... Um, about um, your future. Well, aren't you sick and tired and angry about affirmative action programs for African-Americans? So on the potent questions of race and identity and religion to some extent, but frankly also gender, uh, if you see the relentless targeting of feminists by political conservatives, is to cause the male vote to feel angry about their challenged male identity. And also, you know, the substrata of that is, um, is uh, executed often more delicately, but we saw it in the last election campaign here through the Safe Schools programs, be very afraid about, um, about uh, gay culture. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, these are all identity politics issues. Political objective, A, make you feel anxious, maybe frightened, and in certain cases really angry, and then to cause people to conclude that it's those nasty centre-left political party people who are in bed with all those elites over there, not on your side as someone who's suffering but by having a bad job, low education, inadequate health care, and therefore masking the political process from the real message, which is the one I said before. I want to make sure that we kill Leviathan, kill the state so that Rupert gets lower tax. <laughs> so the... Putting all of that together, it, it sounds as if if conservatives have 
culture, nation, identity, belonging, anxiety, fear, your suggestion is that the left needs a bolder, clearer vision on everyday economics so that people can see that their lives will be improved in some quantitative, qualitative sense as a result of their Plus, agenda. causing our voter base and those we wish to join it to be angry about the rank hypocrisy of the process I've just described that the Conservatives deploy. Like, when have we advanced an argument in this country, the UK, the US, which says um, Murdoch's backing Trump or backing... Um, who is that idiot prime minister who gave us Brexit? David Cameron. Um, um, uh, or backing name any one of a series of conservative prime ministers of Australia because he wants to kill the national broadband network and pay lower tax. Uh, we are also able to, what I would say is, incite a legitimate anger, if I was an Old Testament prophet, which I'm not, a righteous anger uh, about that. So I'm not just saying we only have a public policy seminar to send out to our voter base. We can also make them angry, but also, because we're progressives, legitimately inspire people with hope for the future. Mm. It's that cocktail mm. which, cause, which would enable us to win. Terrific. Vision and anger, there's an objective for us all. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Katie Moore from the Office of the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Strategy and Services uh, to give some final reflections to say thanks to Kevin uh, and to close our evening tonight. So can we say w w welcome to Katie? Madanguo. Firstly, I would like to thank Yvonne Weldon and the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council for welcoming us on country today, here this evening. Yvonne's now gone to lead the city uh, for chairing a board meeting for Metro. Um, country here always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to personally acknowledge the Aboriginal custodians of this land who have cared and continue to care for country. As a second note, as we gathered here in the Charles Perkins Centre, I would also like to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, one who we have in the audience up there studying medicine, uh, staff and communities that have contributed to this place as a substantial place of learning for tens of thousands of years. Yuridu Morang, Yamadu Katie Moore. I'm honoured here to be standing representing my communities. I'm a proud Australian, an Aboriginal Australian, proud Wiradjuri woman with connections to lands and communities in Western New South Wales. I'm a University of Sydney student currently studying a part-time MBA after receiving a UN Women National Community Australia MBA scholarship. I'm a University of Sydney staff member, as Mark suggested, within the Office of the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services, Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver. But within all this, I'm a proud Australian. Tonight, we've heard two esteemed speakers who have contributed to this valuable contribution of bold new ideas for Australia's future. I want to thank the Honourable Kevin Rudd, AC, and Professor Mark Steers for their insightful contributions tonight. But these contributions go far beyond tonight. They are the result of a continued commitment to education and the empowerment of Australian voices and citizens around the globe for extended careers. However, I'm equally conscious that not all voices are given equal weight, and there's much unfinished business in this country. For over 160 years, here at the University of Sydney, we've been in the business of raising the next generations of leaders, of investing in academic research and producing the highest quality of global education. It is our responsibility to question, to unlearn and to relearn what leadership for good looks like. Collective respectful conversations give rise to new perspectives and ideas. They are invaluable in a diverse community. The shared experience of giving time face-to-face, -face, listening and speaking is one of our society doesn't relish enough. When we look to our collective future, the vision is something we cannot view completely without acknowledgement of the past, especially the place of our Indigenous people as leaders, mentors and custodians of our land it is critically vital to all our communities and the globe. Without an accurate picture of Australia now, we can't build the sustainable future that celebrates diversity, a future that is responsible to each other and a future that leads by example. I would like to share a piece of communication, lastly, that I read this morning from Jeremy Courtney who's a founder and president of a preemptive love coalition. He's originally from the United States, but Jeremy moved with his family to create an international relief organisation, engaging the front lines of the world's most 
polarizing conflicts in Iraq and Syria. He writes, it's taken me a while to write this, but I've been more public recently about the diagnosis, racism. It's in my blood. Symptoms include thoughts of supremacy and neurotic fears that there's not enough to go around. I used to think the word was a character assassination. There's not a racist bone in my body. But now I know it's even deeper than character. I grew up in a poisonous environment. Of course, I got sick with it. Of course, it affected my eyesight, my sensitivity, and my cognitive development. It took Jess and I moving across the world and seeing it in others to finally recognize the symptoms. Professionals say people with my skin pigmentation get sickest easiest, and we are prone to pass it on without realizing. So even now, a lot of us are sick without knowing it. Our bones feel fine, but it's in our blood. Denial is a no Denial is a normal response to sickness, but there's no use being defensive. No use living in a personal guilt for the environment that made us sick. I didn't get myself sick, but it is communicable. But if we don't work to change the environment, the toxins will continue to poison more and more people. And I'm responsible for that. I'm not the only one with this blood condition. We didn't get ourselves sick, but it's our responsibility to get well and to protect others from the symptoms of what we carry. And through that, we will have bold new ideas for Australia's future. Once again, I'd like to thank the Honourable Kevin Rudd and Professor Mark Steers and each one of you, our community members, for engaging tonight in this important dialogue. Let's keep these conversations going. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.